Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, please make my words this morning drop like the rain and condense like the dew, like gentle rain on grass, like showers on new growth. By your grace, help me to proclaim the name of the Lord and describe greatness to our God. Amen. Did you notice the wealth of natural imagery in this morning's scripture readings? Isaiah invites his hearers to come to the waters. The psalmist says that God's river blesses the earth's growth. Jesus compares God's word to seed and the hearts of the hearers to rocky ground or thorny patches or good soil that brings forth bountiful fruit. These passages teach us about why God created the world the way he did. This morning, I'd like for us to reflect on them. I think we can learn at least three lessons. First, God aims to reveal himself in creation. Second, God aims to glorify himself through creation. And third, God aims to bless his creation. Okay, so first, God reveals himself to us through creation. God's infinite. He's beyond our understanding. Isaiah says that his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. As creation, we could never hope to comprehend the creator, but we can get a pretty good handle on other parts of creation. We know what it's like to be hungry, and thirsty, to be satisfied by bread and water. We see how it rains and the earth brings forth fruit from planted seeds. God uses these elements of creation to show us what he is like, like bread and water. From Isaiah, he satisfies the hungry and thirsty. His word, like Isaiah's rain and Matthew's seed, is powerful to bring forth fruit. It will not return to him void. Though his ways are beyond our knowing, God uses creation to give us a glimpse into what he is like and what he is doing. Second, God glorifies himself through creation. The magnificence of creation testifies to God's greatness. Perhaps nothing on this earth is more magnificent than the mountains. To stand before one or atop one is to be overwhelmed by its beauty, its majesty, and its vastness. Yet as great and glorious and vast as the mountains are, they are subservient to our greater, more glorious, and vaster God. Indeed, Psalm 65 reminds us, it is God who by his strength established the mountains. God governs all that he has made, even the parts of the world that feel uncontrollable and unpredictable. Do you remember the story of the disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee? In the Gospel of Mark, the story actually happens right after the story of the parable of the sower. While Jesus slept, a great storm came upon the boat that the disciples were in. And terrified, the disciples woke Jesus up. Jesus chided them 
for their lack of faith. And then he commanded the storm to be still. Seeing this, uh, the Gospel of Matthew says the disciples were amazed and asked one another, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Perhaps the disciples recognized that Jesus was proving himself to be the very God who our psalm for today says stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves. As awesome is the power of the storms, more awesome still is the God who commands them. God is glorified in his providential governing of the world. So God reveals himself in creation and glorifies himself through creation. And third, God uses creation to bless us with good gifts. Our Old Testament readings praise the Lord for providing life-giving water to the earth and its inhabitants. The earth, the psalm uh, says, brings forth a rich bounty for us to enjoy. These blessings are sometimes natural, the rain and the changing of the seasons, and they are sometimes supernatural. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, Isaiah declares, and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. God uses his creation to bless us. You are God's creation. Indeed, according to Psalm 8, you're the crown of God's creation. I pray that God reveals himself to you and in you, that he is glorified in you, that he blesses you, and that he uses you to bless others. I want to spend a little bit more time this morning thinking together about how God blesses us with good gifts. Because while God blesses us with creation, the greatest gift he gives us is not creation. It is God, the creator himself. There are hints of this in this morning's reading from Isaiah, when Isaiah asks, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He's suggesting that creation cannot offer final, ultimate satisfaction. He invites the, the thirsty to something more than literal water, and the hungry to something more than literal bread. This, of course, prefigures Jesus offering the woman at the well in John 4, living water. It prefigures his saying in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It prefigures Jesus comparing God's word in today's parable to the sower's seed that brings forth a bountiful harvest. This language is all over the Old Testament as well. God calls himself the fountain of living water in Jeremiah. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelites that humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For this reason, Jewish commentators have long understood the bread and water in Isaiah 55 to be God's word. God blesses us with good gifts, yes. But all of these gifts are meant to point us to the greatest gift he offers, which is himself. 
We must never forget this. Never prize creation over creator. Never value any gift more than the one who gives them, God. In today's epistle, Romans 8, Paul says that God blesses us with life by joining us to him and making us like him. So remember the context. Romans 1 through 5 explain how humans fell from God through sin but can be made righteous by God's grace through faith in Christ. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This doesn't mean that we go on sinning. Chapter 6 exhorts us to die to our sin and be raised with Christ. But as we saw last week, Romans 7 explores how even we who are in Christ find it difficult to resist sin. Chapter 8 preaches hope for deliverance from sin and death and into life in the Holy Spirit. And today's reading describes what this life is like and how we come to enjoy it. Paul, in today's passage, is answering the question, how is God making us like him? His answer is, at least to me, very surprising. Paul says, it's the Trinity, of course. So the Trinity is one of Christianity's most peculiar teachings. There's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This generates countless questions and puzzles. You could easily spend your whole life working through them and remain mystified. But in Romans 8, the Trinity is not a puzzle. It is Paul's pastoral answer to a practical problem that each of us face. Is God really making me like him? How? So as Paul describes it, each person of the Trinity is playing a role in giving life to our bodies. The Father adopts us and raises us from death. He does so through the Spirit and in Christ, his only begotten Son. We who had no claim to be called God's children are adopted through the Spirit's work, joining us to God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Son binds us to himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who gives us life. In doing so, the Son makes it possible uh, for us to be co-heirs of the inheritance that he receives from from the Father. Everyone bound to Christ through the Holy Spirit becomes a fellow heir with Christ of God. Is this confusing? Uh, It's confusing to me. Uh, The Bible often uses an analogy that I think can help clarify how this is supposed to work. The analogy it uses is marriage. So consider the following model of marriage. It's not the only model, but it is the one attested to in the scriptures. When two people become married, they're bound together in ways that change their relationships to one another's parents. The husband becomes as a son to his wife's parents, the wife as a daughter to her husband's parents. 
A husband is, of course, not the son of his wife's parents by birth, but in a different way. In English, we use the terms father-in-law and mother-in-law and son-in-law and daughter-in-law to mark this shift. Furthermore, husband and wife become co-heirs to each other's inheritance by birthright. If either husband or wife receives an inheritance from a birth parent, both husband and wife share in that inheritance. They are like co-heirs. This is a consequence of how they are bound together. And I think this is one reason that the scriptures so often describe the relationship between Christ and his church as a marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. This is an image we see in Ephesians and in 2 Corinthians and in Revelation. And all who belong to his church are adopted as God's children. As God's children, we become God's heirs. When we are joined to Christ in marriage, we become children of the Father by adoption. The result of this union with Christ is life. The Holy Spirit gives us life just as he raised Jesus from the dead. He leads us into adoption by the Father and witnesses to that adoption before us. And he dwells in us to remind us that we are God's children and to make it possible for us to boldly call upon God our Father. These are, of course, the words that Jesus instructed us to begin with when we pray, our Father. It is the triune God who brings life to your mortal body, Paul says. Each person of the Trinity is performing some role, but none is doing anything alone. The persons of the Trinity are individuals, but they're not independent. They are distinct, but they're equal in glory and majesty. The Father adopts you through the Son, through the Spirit and in the Son. The Son binds you to himself through the Spirit who dwells in you so that you can receive an inheritance from the Father. The Spirit gives you life, witnessing to your adoption by the Father and confirming your co-inheritance with the Son. So Paul delivers this wonderful reflection on the Trinity's persons and their roles, not as a speculative exposition of a complex or esoteric doctrine, but as a pastoral response to the problem that he and all Christians have faced. How is God giving me life and making me like him? The doctrine of the Trinity isn't an abstract teaching here. The God who gives himself to you as your greatest gift is three in one and wishes to be honored and glorified as such. The Trinity was for Paul and should be for us alive in our hearts. Here's one way that the Trinity has come alive for me and it might for you as well. Devote yourself spiritually to each individual person of the Trinity. Each person is God and as such is worthy of your honor and praise and prayer. If you don't know how to engage in spiritual devotion towards each individual person of the Trinity, why not start with Romans 8? 
For example, taking your cue from Paul, you might honor the Father for adopting you in the Son and through the Spirit. You might praise the Son for sending the Spirit to help you enjoy the inheritance that he received from the Father. And you might pray to the Spirit, asking him to enliven your heart and remind you often of your union with the Son and adoption by the Father. The God who reveals himself in creation and glorifies himself through creation and blesses his creation is three in one. Nothing could be more mysterious nor more glorious. May we receive the Trinity as our blessing. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.